There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Can please stand when you get that? First Samuel chapter four, verse one. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped in Aphek. And the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of the enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptian with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines. You do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Lord, we praise you this morning just for who you are in our lives. And we know, Lord, that everything that has been written in your word has been written for our admonition. And I pray, Lord, you would take that word and admonish us and teach us and encourage us and uh, just use it, Lord, to just mold us a little bit more to the image of your Son. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Paul Harvey tells a story about an attractive airline stewardess who was, be, who was being hounded by two flirts, one at the front of the plane, the other at the back. She was obviously very disgusted by the very forward advances being made by the two men, but she kept right on doing her job. Near the end of the flight, one of the men became very bold, and as the plane was about to land, 
he handed her a key to his apartment and the address and said, See you tonight. To his great surprise, she smiled and took the key. She then promptly walked to the back of the plane, handed the key to the other flirt, winked at him seductively and said, Don't you dare be late. Later on that evening, I bet there were two very disappointed men in an apartment somewhere. Have you ever been disappointed when someone you were looking for failed to show up? Well, in the case of those two jerks, maybe it was in the way in which they had issued their crude invitation. That's also one reason why God sometimes doesn't show up. Sometimes God doesn't come because he doesn't appreciate the way in which he was invited. I want us to look at a time in Israel's history when God didn't show up and the reasons why. If you recall from last week, Samuel has just learned from God, has just heard from God. He was given a very heavy message that he had to pass on to the old priest Eli. We're going to see in chapter 4 the fruition of all that Samuel said. This chapter is a dark picture indeed. We see the spiritual condition of Israel at this particular time. God is going to bring to the conclusion the thing he said he would do to the house of Eli. Look at verse 1 with me. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped in Aphek. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined the battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. The word of Samuel that came to all of Israel is not an introduction as it was through chapters 4 through 6, but it's a general summary statement like the last few lines of chapter 3. But it is a reference of the beginning of his role as a prophet to Israel. The word of Samuel that came to all of Israel was the word of the Lord that came to Samuel that night in the temple of Shiloh where we read, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. The first event that will cause all of that to begin to happen begins with this battle. We have recorded that the Philistines have put themselves in battle array. It is not clear who instigated the hostilities. And for the purpose of the story we are about to hear, it really doesn't matter. The point is, is that a battle was brewing. The Philistines are not newcomers to the Bible story, although this is their first appearance in 1 Samuel. We will see that they will be major players until the end of this book. The Philistines are mentioned in Scripture as early as the days of Abraham. In the books of Samuel, they're mentioned over a hundred and fifty times. They were originally a seagoing people from, the re- from a region who invaded the territory 
along the Mediterranean coast called Phoenicia. After that, they sought to control all the land that we know today as Palestine. In fact, the name Palestine is a form of the word Philistine. Now, we know from history that the Philistines were very distressed when Israel conquered the promised land and many times attempted to drive them out. It's possible that this particular battle was Israel's response to one of those Philistine invasions, but we simply don't know for sure. Verse 3, please. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. What has happened was a disaster from the Israelite point of view, and it raised for them a very serious question. The disaster is reported with brevity as we are told that 4,000 Israelis were killed. They have to be wondering what in the world has went wrong. Think of it from their viewpoint in history. These people had entered the land with the extraordinary promises of God. They were given promises of rest, of peace, and of blessing. And you have to know that in the back of their minds, they realized that God had rescued their nation from more powerful enemies than the Philistines. While the most powerful nation of that day in the region was Egypt, And even Egypt had been forced by the mighty acts of God's power to release these people from slavery so they could come and live here. Furthermore, by great acts of power, God had unmistakably given the Israelites all of this land. All this he had done in faithfulness to the promises that he had made. And yet, once again, they were under threat and were soundly defeated by the Philistines. The elders understood up to a point what had happened. They did not think that God was somehow absent from this battle. They saw their defeat as an act of God rather than as an achievement of the Philistines. And in this, they were right. Verse 2 supports this. Literally, it says... Israel was defeated before the Philistines instead of by, as the New King James translates it. And in verse 3, we see it correctly translated as before and not as the word by the Philistines. Why am I making such a big deal out of that? Because I'm a Bible nerd and I dig stuff like that. But the other reason is the passive verb was defeated and the phrase before and not by the Philistines indicate that the route of the Israelites was the work of a higher authority than the Philistines. This is what the elders understood. 
the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines. But do you know what I find really interesting? They've asked, why has the Lord defeated us today? But they never stop to find the answer. Instead, they find their own solution to the dilemma. Now, can I just say that they are not alone in that mistake? Lots of us can take the same approach whenever we encounter some difficulty in life. We have a problem, so we jump in with the first solution that springs to our mind. Now, I'm guilty of this also. Oftentimes, we don't even stop and ask God if he's even trying to tell us something through the events that are happening. We don't even think of pausing and asking God if he has a suggestion for what we should do. Instead, we rely on our own ingenuity. Did you ever think that the root word of ingenuity is the word genius? Now, honestly, how many of us fall into that category? Come on, this is Calvary Chapel that we're talking about. But like that group in our story, we just forge ahead with the first thing that pops into our minds. It brings to mind the last words of some redneck who would say something like, Here, hold my beer and watch this. And that's what Israel did. Well, minus the beer, of course. Someone must have said, I know what we need to do. We need to send some people to Shiloh and have them bring back the Ark of the Covenant. Because if we do that, we are insured of winning any military campaign. The thing is, the Lord had already told them how to fight their battles, and it has nothing to do with the Ark of the Covenant. We find God's instructions for warfare in Deuteronomy 21. It says, When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt, is with you. When you are approaching the battle, the priest shall come near and speak to the people. He shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, you are approaching the battle against your enemies today. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Now, when I say the Ark of the Covenant, I have to wonder how many of you thought of that movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Remember that? The Nazi soldier opened up the Ark of the Covenant and his face melted right off the bone. I've never been able to find that passage in the Bible, but it did look pretty cool. So, what is this thing called, the Ark of the Covenant? Well, the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned at least 35 times in these three chapters, and it represents Jehovah God, the central person in all of Israel's history. The ark was the most important piece of furniture in the tabernacle, and it resided in the Holy of Holies. In the ark were the two tablets of the law, and on top of it was the golden mercy seat, 
where God's glorious presence dwelt. This was the throne of God from which he would speak to his people. The problem is the Israelites thought that the ark was possessing power as if it were God himself. Notice in verse 3 it says, So that, and here's the word, it may go with us and save us. They didn't want a God. They wanted something that would bring them luck. And so, as usual, they knew where God was if they needed him, or so they thought. But instead of searching their hearts and confessing their sins, the people decided to imitate Joshua and Moses and take the Ark of the Covenant into the battle with them. But unlike Moses and Joshua, they didn't seek the will of the Lord. They weren't walking by faith, and they certainly weren't seeking to glorify God. But this approach was merely to just use God to accomplish their own selfish purposes. Let me make one thing clear to all of us this morning. God will not be used just to allow people to achieve their own selfish purposes. God's promise, if you remember from chapter 2, was, Those who honor me, I will honor. With 4,000 casualties, Israel had taken a severe beating. They called for the Ark of the Covenant, certain that it would deliver them. But God doesn't work that way, because he wants his people to look to him and not to some object. The Israelites were in error, sure that the God in the box would give them victory. They are sure the ark, it will deliver us. Our plan, our ritual, our our religion, our luck, it will deliver us. Why humble ourselves and seek God when we already have God in a box. Now, many of us have walked with the Lord long enough to have jumped through countless hoops or checked off numerous boxes, the latest fad, the hottest trend in spiritual life, only to find out in the end that they do not work. God wants us to be spirit-led day by day. He wants to show us what he has for us to do rather than what some program will do for us. Now, this reveals the superstition and the paganism of these people who thought that there was some merit in that object. The merit was not in that box because God was not in that box. You cannot get God into a box. The merit was in the presence and person of God himself. Now, I'm afraid today that many people in the church are almost equally as superstitious. They think that God, as it were, is in a box. They say, look at this method. It's a nice little package deal. It is success in a box. Buy my CDs, and these five steps will solve all of your problems. 
So many people are caught up in things like that today. My friends, that is not being spiritual. That is being superstitious. And sadly, religion and superstition are often mingled together. Like those who think that by wearing a crucifix, they are somehow protected from evil. Now that may work on vampires, but real life is much more scary than that. Or my favorite is the plastic statue of Jesus that some people put on their dashboard to keep them safe in their travels. The funny part to me, though, is they always have him facing the wrong way. I mean, shouldn't he at least be facing the road instead of looking at the back seat? But aren't we sometimes guilty of the exact same thing any time we want to rely on a formula instead of faith? A ritual instead of a relationship. If I read this many chapters, pray for this length of time, go to this many numbers of services, then the Lord has to bless all of my endeavors. It is easy to think that we can box up our spiritual life in a neat little package. After all, I have God in a box, all neat and tidy. But God doesn't desire formula. He desires relationship. The same thing can happen to me, though. I bring the ark into Bill Scott's camp. My boxes are all checked off on my spiritual to-do list. Therefore, it is sure to be a great day. But I've discovered that many times when all of my boxes are checked off, the day goes horribly wrong. Lord, I cry. I checked off all my boxes. I read my Bible. I prayed. I went to church. I even tithed 11% last week. Why don't I have victory in this area? And the Lord would say to me, It's not about bringing a box into your camp or checking a box off of your list. Only a relationship with me will bring victory as I guide you step by step, day by day. Now, reading two chapters a day or attending church two times a week won't guarantee victory any more than bringing the box into the camp brought victory to the Israelites. God simply doesn't work that way. So why read, pray, or come to church then? Well, if, however, reading two chapters a day or attending church two times a week is done for the purpose of meeting Him or learning more about Him or spending time with Him, He has promised then to meet us in those times. James 4.8 assures us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He wants us to give all glory and honor to him, not to our box of religious practices and customs. All too often, though, Christians go, and they get, go to books and go seminars and they present four steps of deliverance, six steps to victory, 12 principles of success. But in the end, God just desires our fellowship and our obedience. So not only was it a bad idea to try to put God in a box, 
Look who is bringing the box back. This whole thing is just a monumental bad plan. Even worse, the two wicked priests, Hophni and Phinehas, would be the ones carrying back the ark of God. Now let's stop and think about that for a moment. How could God possibly bless two sinful men he has already consigned to judgment? The elders and the people of Israel may not have understood, but the answer to why the question of God's failure to keep the promise of the covenant was, it was represented by the ark and the failure of those two wretches who were carrying that ark down from Shiloh. Can they really think they can appeal to the promises of God represented by the ark when the two men carrying it are reprobates who have despised and mocked God their entire lives? But as I thought about it, it's not surprising that Hophni and Phinehas accompanied the ark. They were carnal indeed, and carnality always relies on programs or formulas instead of walking in the Spirit. It was a case of the blind leading the blind. And when that happens, we know Jesus said that both parties will fall into the pit. A modern form of this is to see the promises of God as some kind of magical formula. If I do this, this, and this, then God must do this. Christians need to learn that God is not like a mop or a dish rag that we call upon only to clean up our messes. He would not allow Israel to use him that way, and he won't allow us to use him that way either. The question remains then, are we putting God first in our lives or only summoning God when everything else has failed us? That is something that we all have to answer in the privacy of our own hearts. Look at verse 5 with me. And when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the ark comes into the camp and it causes a great cheer to erupt from the Israeli people. Actually, the Jewish historian Josephus records the cheer for us. It went, and I quote, U-G-L-Y, you ain't got no alibi, you're ugly, you're ugly. Not really, I just made that part up. But the Hebrews is what foreigners often called the people of Israel at times, and it was in an apparently derogatory tone. The Hebrews had just been soundly defeated by the Philistines, so what did they possibly have to shout about? But the loud shouting does get the Philistines' attention, and they wonder what all that noise means. The truly sad thing is, they are shouting, thinking the victory is now theirs, when in reality, things are only going to get much, much worse. West Virginia football fans can fully identify with that. 
When it comes to the Christian life, some some churches won't consider the service a success unless there has been a huge outpouring of emotion. I've heard more than one person over the years say, the service was so powerful that the preacher didn't even get to preach. Now, I have a real problem with that. Because Psalm 138 tells us that God magnifies His Word above His name. And Romans 10.17 tells us that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. Now, let me say, I'm a pretty emotional guy, but I don't base my faith on my emotions because my emotions are fickle and my heart is deceitful. One last thing and I'll let it go. The biggest problem, I think, with churches that rely on shouting and big emotional energy is once that emotion wears off, and it will, they are left with nothing substantial at all to cling to. The old adage is true. God does not care about how high we jump, but about how straight we walk. I've been in meetings where there was a lot of sky-high jumping, but not straight walking in the lives of those who attended there because they have never been taught the Word of God. They've been given clever sayings and admonitions and stories, but nothing of substance to help them walk straight the next day. God's Word is the key, and that is why I love Calvary Chapel. Now, we are certainly not a perfect church. There are a couple of you in here that messed that up for us, and you know who you are. (laughs) Just kidding. There is no such thing as a perfect church because every church is filled with imperfect people. Verse 7, please. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, so you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Now the reaction of the Philistines is really somewhat of a surprise. They had just shown their military superiority over the Israelites, So what made them think that they had anything to fear? Remarkably, it was because they had heard the stories from the book of Exodus. Listen to this. They lament, Woe to us! Who shall deliver us from this hands of the mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. The news of what God had done many years earlier in Egypt had spread throughout the lands. The Philistines rightly trembled at the idea of finding themselves up against this God or these gods. They weren't really quite sure on that point. But the real intriguing thing to me is Israel had no idea of the fear they produced 
simply because of the God that they served. Now, this kind of thinking has always plagued them. Do you remember the account of the 12 spies that were sent into the promised land? Only Joshua and Caleb brought back a positive report, but they were overruled by the majority. Let me remind us of their words. This is Numbers 13.32. The land we pass through to explore is one that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw in it are men of great size. We even saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak from the Nephilim. To ourselves, we seem like grasshoppers, and we must have seemed the same way to them. They said, you got to be out of your cotton-picking mind. There are giants over there. But now listen to this part. They said, to ourselves, we seem like little grasshoppers, and we must have seen the same way to them also. In other words, we know we're nothing more than grasshoppers, and furthermore, we know that they know that also. But you know what? They were completely wrong about how the enemy viewed them. Well, how do I know that? Later on in Joshua, he sent out two more spies, and they hid in the house of Rahab the harlot. Now listen to the truth of how the Israeli enemies truly and accurately viewed them. This is Joshua 2.8. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you this land, that the terror of you have fallen on all of us, and that all the inhabitants of our land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord has dried up the water of the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt, and what he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted." Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Did you get that? Israel thinks their enemies viewed them as grasshoppers, but in reality, the hearts of their enemies were melting with fear. You know what else? If you're a Christian this morning, you have nothing to fear from the enemy. Why? Because we're so great and powerful? No. Man is but dust. But we serve an all-powerful king who also happens to be our father. That's good news for someone in here this morning. In closing, suddenly in verse 9, the Philistines' fear turns into fortitude. Why did the Philistines' fear suddenly turn into strength? Well, the best explanation I can think of is fake religion won't fool people for too long. False religion is simply a lot of pomp but no power. It's activities without an altar. It's mere excitement and entertainment without any kind of heavenly enlightenment. 30,000 men died. This was a horrible defeat. 
a brutal, bloody battle in which the Philistines butchered the people of Israel. The real problem, however, was not the Philistines. Israel had encountered the problem of the power of God. God was more than powerful enough to deliver them from the Philistines. Even the Philistines knew that. But the Israelites could not control the power of God. They found themselves on the wrong side of that power as God came against them in judgment. The Philistines were just his unwitting instruments. There was absolutely nothing that the Israelites could have done to save themselves. The Bible tells us that if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, the reverse of that is also true. If God is against us, then it doesn't matter who is for us. Well, come back next Sunday, and I'll tell you what this battle and the legend of Sleepy Hollow have in common. And, Lord, we know that we can't control you, that you're not in a box, but in an amazing and wonderful way, Lord, we are now that box. We're that temple, and you choose to dwell among us, Father, and inside of us. And I just pray, Lord, that you would teach us to walk in your spirit day by day, not trying to rely on formulas and little schemes, but just in a relationship as a child with their parents. Make that true for us. We ask in Christ's name, amen.